Hey, peeps. It's Pat Brown. Roderick Makem. We're going to be talking about the news for the week ending 11 October 2013. No, I'm not going to sing out as the podcast. That'd be stupid. (laughs) All right. So today, we've actually got a vague structure that I'll walk you through. We'll start with Ebola, um, and then we're going to talk about ISIS and uh, the lack of effect that the American bombing seems to be having. And then we might go a bit deeper on some of the themes in that story and talk about um, Islamism, uh, Islam, and jihadism, the relationship between them through the lens of the debate on Bill Maher's real time between Sam Harris, Bill Maher, and Ben Affleck for the most part. Mm -hmm. Nicholas Kristof was also involved, but... um, those were the main actors. So Ebola. Yeah, definitely uh, it seems to be just getting more and more attention as, uh, as it continues to spread. Um, there, was, uh, there was a scare in Australia last week where they thought some nurse in Cairns had had it um, because she'd just come back from, uh, from West Africa where she was treating people with Ebola and she had a fever. Turns out she's fine. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, a person has died in America and, and a second confirmed case being one of the nurses uh, who was treating that man um, has also picked it up. And, mm. um, and the American media seems to be uh, losing their mind a little bit over it. They're losing their mind, and I think for good reason in the sense that uh, the response has been incredibly inept by that hospital. Um, also by the Texas state authorities. I think you can just wind that out. The The response to Ebola has been inept from all Western countries. Okay. What would sort of uh, lead you to say that? Going right back to when it, uh, when it first started in, um, in West Africa, when they only had a couple of hundred cases and less than 100 deaths, it was basically just completely... Um, ignored by Western media and Western governments as anything that could become a potential uh, a potential problem. And I suppose to be fair, um, you know, Ebola has been around since 1976. They have had localized outbreaks before that haven't, you know, moved beyond uh, Congo. I believe is the country that had most of the ones, most of the outbreaks that have occurred prior to this one. Um, but uh, it just be- it just sort of was allowed to keep gathering momentum, um, and uh, and I think the Nigeria example I can't remember if we discussed this in the last podcast. Uh, yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but just to quickly go over it again, the Nigeria example of how uh, you know in one of the you know most populated cities in West Africa, a real trading and uh, a transport hub for the area when there was. Um, when the outbreak uh, hit there, you could see how immediate response um, and expertise thrown at the problem was able to uh, to minimise the harm, um, and yeah. there just wasn't any uh, wasn't any of that from the West um, until uh, well until someone in America got it basically, which isn't um, uh, having a go at America. I mean. This week, uh, Australia has said we're not going to be sending any doctors or nurses to help out with the problem. Well, um, you know, interestingly enough, actually, I think it was on Saturday Australian time yeah. that 
the American senator that was holding up $750 million in aid to go to Liberia yeah. uh, withdrew his filibuster <laughs> to allow that funding through. So the fact that the American Congress is such a sclerotic institution is probably got something to do with the fact that the US sat on their hands for as long as they did. Yeah. And... Um I think it says, as uh, I think this says it all, in that despite having looked at the news, um, you know, relatively fre- frequently over several months about what's going on with Ebola, I couldn't tell you the first thing about what the United Nations response to it has been. That's a good point, actually. The WHO seems to have not really been in the headlines, and you would expect them to be leading the charge. Yeah, they've had a couple of a uh, couple of statements about how it's you know spreading and the the number of of um, of people affected, um, and I think there was a statement today from them talking about how uh, likely it is to uh, to spread into Europe. Hmm. Um, highly likely was the um, was I believe the uh, the conclusion. Um, that would make but, sense. But in terms of uh, in terms of you know a global plan um, about a high a uh, you know a disease that is uh, contagious and um, kills the fuck out of people, uh, it's been sadly lacking on all levels. Yeah, there, um, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of coordination. Yeah. And, and that's before you even get to the uh, to the very confused media narrative about it, where you have stories on the one hand saying, "Oh, by the way, don't worry, not a problem, hardly contagious at all, everyone just calm down," and then all the other stories about, um, you know, this sort of a bowler is going to slice us up. Um, it's uh, mm. it's it's this sort of ridiculous uh, all in or all out coverage from the media. It's just. That's why I say everything about the West's uh, response to Ebola has been inept. Let me reel off a few examples of this ineptness. And I know we're talking about Texas here. (laughs) So whether or not these indicators of stupidity can be generalised to other states in America remains to be seen. But... I know some intelligent Texans. You do? Yeah. All right. I'll take your word for it, mate. I'm yet to encounter one. Uh, <laughs> one of them uh, was the creator of a, uh, a particular dish that Pat likes very much, um, jalapenos stuffed with cream cheese wrapped in bacon. Yeah, and that got me high cholesterol. So I've got, <laughs> I've got that guy nothing to thank for. Um, so one of the things that really sort of stuck in my mind, first of all, the fact that the guys cleaning up the apartment of the man who'd been affected were called the cleaning guys. Now, that might be the most glib name for a murder scene specialist cleanup operation I've ever heard of, or the Texas authorities just got hold of the first guy they came across in the phone book and decided to have them clean. And apparently, amongst some of the other things they did that were incredibly stupid, they pressure hosed a patch of vomit off concrete outside the apartment Outside the apartment. Basically turned the man's highly infectious vomit into a a fine mist for the neighbourhood to breathe in. Outside the apartment. Outside the apartment. So that gives you some indicator of the sort of um, just wrongheadedness that we're dealing with. And then, of course, you've got the hospital 
which seems to have royally fucked up by letting the guy go home and readmitted him basically on death's door. He mm. subsequently died. And interestingly enough, I'll big myself up for talking about the racial stuff in the podcast earlier on. There have been allegations of racism by that guy's family. Yeah, yeah, I saw that today. Yeah, and I mean, whether or not that's to be believed is open to question, but what seems to me to be more likely is that he was not given adequate care um, even with the information to hand about the fact he'd been in Liberia because he didn't have insurance. And as we all know, American hospitals are loath to treat people with insurance or to expend resources on people Without who insurance. don't have insurance. Sorry, yeah. So those are a few examples of just how fucking dumb the health authorities in America have been. Yeah. Was there... Um, uh, I didn't have time to read it this afternoon, but I, I thought I saw a report about a potential other case up in Massachusetts. Um, really? I've actually yeah. not... I mean, I do know that they've got another case from the Texas hospital, a nurse who was looking after yeah. the chap, and that's another indicator of incompetence. Um, it also actually leads to questions about how contagious it actually is, which we'll get onto in a second. Yeah. But the fact is that apparently there was a breach of protocol. They're not sure what it is, but the nurse had been wearing the, the hazmat suits, for want of a better way to put it, still managed to contract it. And all the science indicates that if she had followed protocol, they would not have... Uh, it would not have been possible for her to get the virus. And you've got to ask yourself some questions about competence when someone whose life is on the line is not competent enough to stop themselves getting infected. Obviously, these people aren't well-versed in the protocols uh, because, of course, they have every interest in making sure they don't fucking breach them. It's their life at stake. If you can't trust people to take care of their own lives, I'm not sure how you can trust them to take care of the lives of the rest of us. Yeah. What um, the case of this nurse really uh, brought up for me was, uh, and I touched on it a second ago, the confusion about just how contagious Ebola is. Yeah. Um, Because uh, there have been such uh, conflicting reports on it. The amount of things I've read over the past few months talking about how, oh, don't worry, not actually that contagious. Um, uh, Compared to, well... Uh, for an example, I uh, saw something today uh, with some report talking about how, oh, it's not actually um, uh, transmitted by people coughing or sneezing, which I thought strange if it, you know, is carried through bodily fluids and if you sneeze and someone breathes in your bodily fluids in the, you know, in the droplets, how is that different? To, yeah, everyone's to seen else? those those uh, pictures of people sneezing taken with, you know, cameras with high shutter speeds and the like. Yeah, but uh, but then not uh, not five minutes after that, um, I saw another report, um, and I just can't remember where this one came from, saying, uh, answering uh, or trying to answer that exact question, saying, we don't actually know uh, if it's transmitted by coughing and sneezing, those tests haven't been done, which then leads to another question, how have those tests not been done? Ebola was discovered back in was 1976, mm. and there have been outbreaks, um, quite a few. Uh, you would think that then, there had surely been, those tests have been done. You would like to think so. And here we just go back to ineptness. This is the annoying thing about it, dude, because I see media hyperventilating, but I don't see 
the caution that you would think is commensurate with that hyperventilation actually being applied in the field. Yeah. So we're left in the worst of both worlds where we have a media that's panicking and people who don't seem to be acting in a way that the panic you would think... Well, it's almost like there's a complete disconnect between how the media is panicking and how uh, the medical profession is not. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure there was a better way of putting that. Um, But personally, I'd like to see a little less panic from the media and a little more concern from uh, from the medical industry, I would. I'm fine with the panic. I mean, the media. I think that's always going to be the nature of it. It's a sensationalism machine. At the same time, though, I'd like to think that one of the upsides to that downside is that the people involved with such things are extra bloody careful and don't get themselves infected slash send home patients <laughs> to apartment blocks when they've been in Liberia and aren't feeling well. Slash don't hire the cleaning guys. Oh my god. Which, I mean it sounds like a it sounds like people from a badly written Tarantino movie. Yeah, and just call the cleaning guys. I don't know if we mentioned this last week, but this is the other thing that fucking flabbergasted me is the fact that they actually couldn't find for the family of the guy who was infected, they could not find a medical containment facility to keep those people while they're in quarantine. And the state authorities actually had to lean on wealthy benefactors to just provide a random house that these people would go to. Yeah. It's like, how is it possible that one of the largest states in America does not have enough in the way of resources to keep these people quarantined properly? Yeah. That is amazing to me that they had to resort to a private residence to contain a family that could have been infected by the virus. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I really hope this is not indicative of how well organised the West in general is. Like I said, it's Texas. I, um, I'm hoping they're atypically stupid, basically. Uh, no, I think, uh, I think there's going to be incompetence dealing with this in most countries, you find, because people just aren't prepared for it. Um, mm. Uh, I haven't, uh, one area that I haven't been looking at, which I probably should have been, is um, what's been happening with the, uh, the cases that they've had in Spain. Um, Good point. Let me have a quick squeeze on the front of the New York Times. No worries. Um, nothing immediately presents itself. Um, but my understanding is, is that there has been a nurse who's potentially infected in Spain. Um, but uh, look, I'll have a quick squeeze of that while we uh, move on to the next topic. No which... worries. Oh, did we want to do a shout out to Stormo for the Ebola? Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> sure, Stormo. Thanks for the. Um, I hesitate to say expert medical opinion, but you, <laughs> you did work as an ambulance driver, and certainly you must have been trained to do that. So <laughs> it's our first uh, expert call in. Um, what Stormo did mention in an email he sent to us was that uh, such things are pretty unlikely, by things I mean uh, contagious viruses like Ebola, they're unlikely to take hold in the West with the medical infrastructure that we have because of just basic precautions that we take. And he seemed to be intimating that really it was an issue for West Africa and the fact that they've got super primitive facilities for trying to contain something like this. And I think... Basically, he's probably right about that. Although Texas is not a great indicator to begin with. 
if you're wearing a hazmat suit and you still manage to get it, even when it's your life on the line, I go back to that point because we're not just talking about incompetence. We're talking about people guarding their own lives. I mean, that's the purest incompetence where you can't keep yourself safe. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I, I know. I know exactly what you mean. I am uh, a little hesitant to really put the boot into a lady who's now got Ebola. Oh, look. I, put it this way: I don't feel too bad about it. I think it's super unlikely she'll die, and the reason is because they've detected it early. Of course, they all would have been on tent hooks about their own health. So it seems that an early intervention in a Western medical context is enough to keep people alive. Yeah. Although, going back, hope she to doesn't this, pass it on to anyone else. Yeah, going back to this racism point it's super difficult to not understand why black people would be pissed that the only person in america to die so far of ebola out of the four or five american cases that they've had is a black dude i just leave that one hanging that shit's uncomfortable i mean it's not necessarily ev like it's not proof yeah. but it certainly doesn't make you feel good as a human being in 2014 Correlation is not causation, but but it's, <laughs> but statistics are a bitch. Yeah, statistics, especially in small sample sizes, are a bitch. Um, anyway, so next topic: ISIS. ISIS, the Islamic State in Syria or the Levant. So ISIL. I actually think it's probably more correct to call them ISIL, hmm. and that's what the American administration seems to be sticking to. Although I've noticed that the media likes to call them ISIS because it, it's got quite a nice ring to yeah, it. Yeah, it rolls off the tongue easier. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think ISIS, there's just something more evil sounding Celibate. about ISIS. It's like a snake mm. with a hiss. Yeah. I, I think we would actually be interested to hear from anyone who's got an opinion on that. I mean, are we just reading too much into it? ISIL sounds like a pill that you pop. Like it's go and have two ISIL and lie down. Yeah. Um, actually, that's a fucking great point, man. You're exactly right. It just does not sound as malignant as ISIS, no. does it? Yeah. Okay. So the latest on ISIS is that the Americans have been pounding them with um, air sorties. And it does not seem to be making the difference that everyone had hopefully anticipated or anticipated hopefully would be the way to say it. Um, they just took over a major Kurdish enclave in northern Syria and that presented some real problems because they're massacring Kurds. Uh, and this is, of course, to the uh, disappointment of the large Kurdish minority in Turkey who are rioting in certain parts of Turkey because they would like the Turkish government to intervene to prevent their brethren over the border from being massacred the way they are. Um, in the meantime, there's been a complete lack of commitment from any major US ally in the region to really get stuck into this. Of course, the Iraqis, their own necks are on the line, so they're in the game, but no one else no. does. Yeah. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, well, just uh, another thing uh, that's been released this week from ISIS is a, uh, another video of uh, another journalist who they kidnapped a while ago. Um, and rather than executing him, um, they've, uh, they've got him talking uh, on screen. As if to build anticipation for the execution. Yeah. I think it's just stage managed. It's just, yeah. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, he's uh, in it. He's, uh, he's basically making the point... And obviously, this is what ISIS want him saying. Um, 
that they're not daring uh, the Americans to send in in ground troops, and um, and obviously that's um, obviously that's what they wanted because uh, the last instance of American ground troops in Iraq uh, did nothing but create hundreds of thousands of more enemies for America. Um, mm, I think there's an interesting thing to note about ISIS which is that there are splits within the organisation itself. You've got highly ideological foreign fighters, but actually the core of the group, in Iraq at least, are disillusioned former Ba'athist Saddam-era generals. Um, I don't think that those guys are keen on the idea of the Americans coming back in. But at the same time, it seems pretty clear that the foreign fighter element is gunning for it. Um, I just think it's it's easy to to write these organisations off as monoliths um, and to kind of talk about them. What's the word when you give an inanimate thing or an abstract concept a personality? You remember that from English? I don't actually. Someone let us know via email. It's mail at patandrodsavetheworld.com. I know that there's a term for when you give personality to an inanimate to an inanimate thing. Um, maybe it'll occur to me later on. But it, it's worth pointing out that it's while ISIS is, it seems to be very cohesive, committed, and well-organized, it still is a fairly factionalized organization. Um, and I suppose the contradictions in Obama's policies are becoming clearer by the day as the American bombardment seems not to be having the effect that people wanted and the Allies are really staying out of it. Um, and so the whole idea of leading an international coalition to meet this clear and present danger in the Middle East just does not seem to be materialising in the way that they hoped. Uh, and the Australian government's in, of course, the Australians are always in, annoyingly, yeah. to those of us who don't particularly want to be America's poodle. Um, French are in. The French are in. That's true. And in fact, that was a hilarious bit from John Oliver's show about the filthy French. <laughs> the <laughs> ISIS in a statement singled the French out for particular ridicule and uh, called them, quote, filthy French, um, which is just hilarious because I suppose I don't necessarily disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just on the uh, just on the Australian, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Involvement. Yeah, there was something else, but let's go with involvement. Um, uh, I just uh, I just like to give credit where it's due on the Australian Air Force for something that happened last week. I don't necessarily agree with them being there in the first place, um, but there was uh, there was a few articles about it. How. Uh, they went to do their first round of airstrikes there. However, their target moved into a highly populated area and they called it off because there was too much of a risk of collateral damage. Uh, the next day they had a different target which they took out without a problem. Um, and I have very uh, particular views on uh, collateral damage, which I'm not sure you have the same ones. Um, but to me, that's exactly how things should operate. So well done Australian Air Force. Yeah, we do have, I think I'd put it this way, we have different tolerances to the idea of collateral damage. Yeah. 
Um, and the problem with having different tolerances or feelings towards the numbers that are proportionate and acceptable is that it's such an inexact thing to actually have a discussion about. I'm sure it'll come up in the yeah. future, but um, I mean, I'm all for avoiding it where possible. It's just that I suppose I have some sympathy for countries that are put in the awkward position of seeing clear and present threats. Uh, I don't like the sound of me saying something like that. Um, countries that really have people that they need to get and there are civilians ne nearby. Um, uh, I, I suppose I just am sort of sympathetic to the conundrum that the armed forces find themselves in when it comes to things like that. But so far as your, your views on this ISIS caper, yep. James Baker uh, the third. The, uh, who worked in the administration of um, George Bush one, they did the Gulf War. He was the Secretary of State, I think, don't quote me. But he's an old realist sort of uh, talking head from the American foreign policy establishment. And he was basically saying over the weekend that he considered this was something that should be met with ground troops if necessary. And that's caused quite a stir in America. I mean. Do you think that this would be something that Australia should commit ground troops to? I mean, just to make it personal to us, because we happen to be Australian. Yeah, I um, I think it remains the same as my feelings on the uh, on the airstrike involvement. Um, only, obviously, on a uh, on a much larger scale, and that I can't see any benefit to Australia for getting involved at all. Um, in fact, I can see clear potential for harm to Australia for getting involved, or at least increased uh, chances of harm. Would you have been in favour of the bombing that stopped the Yazidi minority, though? Yeah, that's the point I was going to make. Uh, to the extent where you can uh, have a clear and obvious goal that is achievable, such as stopping the Yazidis from getting slaughtered. You mm. can you can see that you can see that you've succeeded in that. Mm. Um, then uh, then go for it. Uh, degrading and destroying ISIS is not a clear or achievable goal. I agree entirely on that. Let me ask you though, when it's clear and achievable, let's yeah. use the Yazidis again. Yeah. Would you be in favor of doing that thing if such a thing required boots on the ground? End quote. No, I would still want the, I would still want the uh, at the Arab countries to uh, to be providing boots on the ground. Okay, so clearly achievable with the air force mm. and Arab boots if necessary. Yeah. Now, the indi all indicators are that the Arabs are not interested in getting involved yeah. with ground troops. So actually, what you're advocating in effect is not doing anything unless it's a clearly achievable goal with air power, at least confined to Iraq because that's the only place where there are boots on the ground yeah. to back up the Americans. So, I mean, effectively, you're saying cut it off at Syria? No. I can't... Uh, I, I just can't see in basic, uh, in basic terms uh, the advantage for Australia being in Syria. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, you're obviously at the realist school. On this one, I am. On a lot of things, I'm um, a bit more idealistic. Um, but just the uh, 
the continued failure of Western military presence in the Middle East and the continued creation of more enemies for the West in every single incursion that we've had there. Uh, at this point, it's got to be something really major for uh, for me to think uh, the West needs to get its boots on. Jeez, Rod. Surrendering, surrendering to the terrorists. What's the matter with you? <laughs> Allowing them to intimidate us. They hate us for our freedoms, mate. Don't you understand? Fucking Southern Cross, bro. So, uh, so yeah, we'll, um, we'll defeat the terrorists by doing exactly what they want, by destroying our own freedoms yeah. and then putting boots on the ground and getting involved in a holy struggle. That's brilliant. Yep. That's... yep. No, look, in reality, I completely agree. Um, I'm... I basically haven't... I'll be honest, I haven't made up my mind. Um, I think that it's a terrible idea to get involved in the thing, particularly with ground troops, but I am not positive that if they continue to roll through the Middle East as they have been, that we shouldn't do something about it. Yeah. Would you... To, sorry, yeah. uh, I just want, I just thought of a you know an example from uh, relatively recent world history, yeah. um, which I think would, you know, would have been the perfect, uh, example for a time when, um, you know, Western countries could have stepped in militarily and stopped something horrific happening with, you know, clear, uh, achievable goals. And that's obviously, uh, the Rwanda genocide of the mid nineties. Yeah. Um, that was something absolutely, uh, absolutely horrifying, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people getting hacked to death with machetes. It was uh, preventable. It was, um, you know, localized to one relatively small country. Um, it it could have been prevented. Uh, I agree with you. That's a good yeah. example of when intervention would have been the right thing to do. Yeah. The question is, and I think this is an interesting thought experiment: What if the Hutus and Tutsis were going at each other with AKs rather than machetes? Would you consider that that is something the West should get involved with? Yeah, no, I think you can still. Uh, I, I, I think um, you know, short of nukes, weaponry uh, wouldn't really come into it that much. So that wouldn't come into your cost calculation. So the fact that because an intervention against people wielding machetes is obviously something where you expect less body bags yeah. to come. Yeah, I mean, from. and to, I mean, I you know have the the machete comment, but there were plenty of other weapons involved in Rwanda as well. Sure, sure. But the machete was a particular feature of that nasty yeah, little thing. Um, the thing is, though, is that by that calculation, if you look at something like Syria, and I'm not saying you're wrong, I'm just sort of making the point that in Syria, you do have essentially ethnic cleansing going on. Yeah, there is that. But it's, I mean, that's the thing. It's not just Syria. It's also, uh, it's so, also yeah. like it's already, it's spilt across various countries. There are so many factions involved. It's not just Houthis and yeah, Tutsis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's. So it's it the is, scale of the it's problem. It's such a fucking mess. Yeah. The scale um, of the problem is what that the, that the that the risk of uh, of western involvement of just adding to the mess I think outweighs the uh, the benefits of getting involved. Mm. That's good. Because I th I think it is more likely that we would end up uh, ultimately making things worse. Or at least it's a very high risk. Yeah. Yeah. That's I think that's a good argument. Well yeah. put. I, I, and to go back to the Rwanda example, I don't think a Western military involvement there carried any real risk of making the situation worse in either the short or long term. That's true. That's, so that's, that's the distinction I draw. Yeah, good point. Because actually, I heard a guy the other day saying, well, look, 
in a world that's experienced World War II and the Holocaust in Rwanda, can we afford to be non-interventionist? And I actually thought that was a good point. It, it is a good point. And okay. it's a good thing to say to people who are sort of knee-jerk non-interventionist. Um, but I think that what you're saying, that just the sheer scale of the mess, and I, I remember saying something akin to that the first time we talked about this, and the fact that we just can't know if we're going to make it any better or worse yeah. at all, really. I, it's, not a, um, it's not a position that I just uh, sort of arrived at. Like I, I have, uh, I do, con- I, I do concede all the uh, all the valid reasons why military involvement in this uh, thing, you know, could be a good idea. But just having really thought about it on balance, uh, I think that the risk of Western involvement escalating the problem is too high. Yeah, I mean, when you find yourself on the same side as Iran, you've got to ask questions. And the real politic thing to do is actually to watch the Iranians slaughter the uh, radical Sunni Islamists and to just let your enemies fight each other. As terrible as that sounds, and as many people who will... I mean, there are just a lot of people who would suffer as a result through no fault of their own if we let that happen. But who said that we were the moral arbiters of the world? Anyway, um, so on a related topic... Islamists and... uh, Yeah, jihadis and Islam and... There was a super interesting debate on Bill Maher's HBO show, Real Time, um, last week between Sam Harris and Bill Maher on one side who think that Islam is inherently problematic, to sum up their position, and Nicholas Kristof, who's an op-ed contributor to uh, the New York Times, and Ben Affleck, obviously the actor, on the other side of it, who are basically saying that it's racist to think that. Um, or that it's stereotyping, or that it's bigoted. Hmm. Um, that's his best. That it's, tar- that it's tarring a billion people with the brush of uh, yeah. Islamist extremism. That's as best as we could sum up their positions. Um, and we're going to put a link to that particular argument in the show notes, so you guys can have a look at it for yourself. And it's really worth looking at because I think it's a very interesting indicator of a split that's happened between people who you would normally think of as left-wing and perhaps more politically correct left-wingers. Yeah. Um, so what were your thoughts on it, Rod? Right. Well, I, um, I thought it was a very, uh, very interesting one. I thought, um, and just to, just to start with, I, um, I don't actually like Bill Maher very much. You don't? Right? I think he can make some really great points and on certain things he's really on the ball, but I just find him so fucking smug. He just annoys Smug's me. a good word yeah. for him. I've been accused of that myself, though, so <laughs> maybe I'm a bit sympathetic to it. Yeah, yeah. but uh, right from the get-go, I could um, I, I could see the moment that Affleck, uh, you know, got offended. Um, and it was at the start of the... Uh, <laughs> it was at the very start when, uh, when uh, Ma and Harris were both talking about... Uh, I can't remember what the phrase they used. I think they were talking like the Muslim world. I think yeah. was it, and, and it was a very generalized term. And straight away, you could see, uh, you know, you could actually like see it in, in Affleck's face. That he, oh, that tiring everyone with the same brush, uh, generalizing, blah blah blah. And so he started going off on this rant. Uh, unfortunately, he was he was just way out of his depth. He because they weren't talking about all uh, Muslim people in the world, um, they were talking about uh, Islamists and jihadis. Um, Mm. And Sam Harris, who I should also give a 
very brief explanation of. Sam Harris is a neuroscientist who's sort of rose to prominence as one of the four horsemen. Four horsemen are the people that they're, they're sort of the new atheist leaders. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and there's another chap. Um, you can find a clip of them having a discussion on YouTube. Anyway, Sam Harris has made his reputation basically by rebutting religion in the public square, and he has been down on Islam. So he and Ma were squared off against yeah. the other two. And the thing, and uh, it was uh, it was interesting to watch the uh, the realization on Affleck's face that he was out of his element um, when Harris, in particular, had all these excellent uh, statistics and research to back up the things he was saying. Mm. Um, and, uh, and you know, I, the way I saw it was that for a good minute there, Affleck just kind of was looking at the table. Uh, and I think uh, from my reading of it was he eventually came to the conclusion that his only way out of it was to bluff and bluster and yes. really play to the crowd um, and start, you know, drawing parallels to, to racism. And, uh, um, it wasn't just drawing parallels. Yeah. He just flat out said it was racist. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, I mean, drawing parallel like to uh, to other forms of racism. Yeah, actually, you're right. Yeah. He he said it's like saying that um, you know you're a shifty Jew. Yeah, or something he, like that. he he you know uh, did something with uh, he made some sort of reference to to African Americans as well. I think he something. did. Yeah, um, he did. It was a real pity because I mean I don't mind Affleck. I think he's an articulate dude. Yeah. But what to my mind he was engaged in was just sheer bloviation. Yeah. If that's even a word. I Yeah, I think he, uh, again, purely my take on it, I think he heard uh, heard someone make a, use a, a general term which he thought meant they were talking about all Muslims everywhere and then made such a big deal out of that, which when it was all this stuff and facts and figures that he didn't know about were pointed out to him and they found out exactly what they were talking about, he just didn't want to admit uh, that he'd got worked up over nothing. Mm. And so then, uh, yeah, well, and played to the crowd. In terms of what he was getting worked up about, I actually think it's worth talking through Harris's argument. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason Affleck looks so stupid was that Harris, who admittedly I had something of a man crush on, um, seemed so fucking smart in comparison. And what Harris used was an analogy of concentric circles to explain the Middle East or the, the Muslim world. And, I mean, look, I'm the first to acknowledge that that's a very, very general term. But in argument, I think you have to generalise to some extent in order to make any progress. There are exceptions to every rule, blah, blah, blah. If you're not going to be a solipsistic sophist, you just need to acknowledge that. So um, he said that basically at the very middle of the concentric circle diagram, you have jihadists who wake up every morning and they want to kill infidels and they're highly motivated to travel to do so. Um, now, outside that circle, you've got another bunch of people, Islamists, who are interested in basically grabbing political power to further Islamic governance, to implement Sharia law, um, and to uh, basically impose their views on societies that they live in through democracy as a vehicle. Uh, and then outside that circle, you have a further circle, which are basically just Muslim conservatives who take the religion seriously. And he didn't get onto it because he was interrupted at a certain point. But outside that, obviously, you just have different 
gradations of commitment to the religion until yeah. you get to my personal favourite Muslim, who is a, a, a I like me a whiskey swilling Muslim. <laughs> I know a lot of them. Um, all power to them for their religion, but um, they tend to be people that I uh, get along better with. Then you know, and that's not because they're Muslims so much as because they're not religious fundamentalists. Yeah, and I don't like religious fundamentalists. Yeah, it was something we were talking about the other day, um, which I thought was interesting enough to uh, to bring up now that we've got to that sort of point in the podcast. Mm. Was our uh, differing experiences with uh, with Muslim co- uh, countries? Yeah, right. Okay, um, because and it goes to the uh, to the whiskey swilling Muslim thing that you just mentioned. So yeah, I'm bring it up now. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, uh, just um, for those of uh, those of you listeners who don't really know either of us, um, uh, we've both uh, we've both travelled a lot and lived in in different uh, different countries for a while. Um, and uh, and my experience of uh, of Muslims it, uh, living in uh, Muslim sort of areas. It's uh, it's a lot less extensive than Pat's, um, but I've spent quite a bit of time in um, in Indonesia, and uh, and while they have their own uh, troubles with Muslim extremists there, um, particularly in Aceh, um, you know uh, the capital city of uh, of Indonesia, Jakarta, um, in the most populous Muslim nation on earth, is uh, it's just Sin City. Um, Hooray! It's, uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, and I mean, uh, and I was uh, I was there for um, you know a little while, um, and uh, you know, got uh, got pickpocketed, got wasted at clubs. Um, no one pro- lost was, their hands. Uh, was propositioned by uh, uh, by Indonesian girls in the street quite frequently. Um, yeah, it's um, uh, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's a uh, it's an Islamist nightmare. Um, and it's the capital city of the most populous Muslim country on earth. Uh, also, spent a bit of time in um, in other parts of Indonesia. Not so much uh, not so much Bali because that's uh, a Hindu, uh, Hindu or Buddhist area of uh, Indonesia, right? As opposed to Muslim. I could not tell you. Um, but a bit of time in um, in uh, in West Timor, um, uh, which was uh, an interesting thing. Having been in in Christian East Timor before that, it was interesting to see. Um, uh, how the difference in uh, in churches to mosques seemed to make absolutely no difference in terms to how friendly and um, and helpful the people were to deal with. Mm. I, uh, I thought it was a great little island team, all east and west. Um, and then for uh, over a year, lived in uh, a suburb called Little India in Singapore, um, and uh, a lot of uh, Indonesia, Indonesian uh, Muslims, uh, not, uh, Indian Muslims there. Um, there was a mosque uh, a couple of hundred meters down the road from where I stayed, um, and uh, and yeah, just never any never any troubles whatsoever with Muslim people in either Muslim countries or um, areas with high Muslim population. So I always had uh, had the impression that um, there really it was it was a, a definite minority in terms of strict Muslims and. Uh, Islamists. Hmm. Yeah. Did you ever have any discussions with people about Islam? I mean, did you explicitly discuss it? Or no. No. And this is where you would obviously have a much better understanding than I. So perhaps. Right. Okay. I was in the West Bank 
the Israeli-occupied West Bank in 2004 and 2005. I started studying there. I ended up working there for a U.S. State Department operation. Specifically, I lived 10 months in a city called Nablus, or Shem, as it's known to the Israelis. Uh, Nablus was probably one of the most conservative Muslim cities in the Middle East. Um, it was the largest city on the West Bank, and it was just super conservative. Um, there were a lot of militant groups. Hamas at the time was a very powerful force in society. And even the uh, supposedly secular or secular-inspired Al-Aqsa Mada brigades were quite religious in tenor. Um, to be honest with you, I think that my view of Islam has been distorted somewhat by that experience in the sense that these were people under real pressure. Um, they were stuck between checkpoints in sort of a cauldron of, uh, of violence. And um, as a result, they were pretty extreme. And what I became acquainted with very much was Islam as a death cult. And I hesitate to use language that strong, but I think that it's accurate. It's an accurate description in the sense that there were lots of people who were in favor of suicide bombing. Um, the streets were covered in posters of martyrs, or shuhada as they call them. Um, the sort of cult of martyrdom was a figure of, of just everyday life. Mm. Um, or people, or shopkeepers smiling as they say, this is not Islam. Yeah, that's right. Um, what I did come across, and I, I also think it's worth mentioning, I'm a white guy. <laughs> you might have already figured that out <laughs> from various stupid things that I've said. Um, and so I acknowledge that I looked like the oppressor of these people. So you should also figure that in mind. Um, the last guy they saw who looked like me was an Israeli soldier at a checkpoint with an M16. So it's fair that perhaps I was a little bit of a, an Israeli voodoo doll. Um, but what I did have a lot of uh, blokes do was show me these incredibly graphic beheadings on their telephones, um, which were from Iraq at the time. Um, it was a big deal back in 2004, 2005. And they would kind of smile and clearly be thrilled by what they were showing me at the same time as waggling a finger at me and saying, this is not Islam, this is not Islam. And there was a kind of a contradiction there uh, that Rod and I have discussed previously. And it's this idea of the glamorous outlaw. Yeah. And all cultures love the glamorous outlaws. That's it. And that's Rod's phrase. So all credit where credit's due. It's actually the best phrasing that I've heard of the sort of phenomenon that I encountered, which was... What did Ali say? You, did Ali say it? I can't even remember. Because it was on uh, Ideas Fucking. Oh, uh, yeah. Ideas Fucking. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so glamorous outlaws was a, a good way to put it. And it's really similar to the way that a kind of a white kid in suburban Massachusetts is kind of thrilled by gangster rap, but would never sort of, he would never advocate it, he yeah. would never participate in it, but he's thrilled by it and he's engaged by it yeah. and he gets something out of it and there's a certain thrill watching yeah. it. I felt that this is how the Arabs felt about um, jihadists. Yeah. And it's a pretty apt 
cultural analogy, if I may say so yeah. myself. In Australia, one of the top uh, rating local TV shows of the past few years has been something called Underbelly. Yeah. Um, and the, the first season of that detailed gangland killings in, uh, in Melbourne over a, a number of years uh, in which, you know, a large, uh, large number of people were just killed in the street in front of their kids and that sort yeah. of thing. Um, and, uh, and it was produced in this very, very glossy, very glamorous TV show. Mm. Um, and but, people loved it. So I think to get back to Bill Maher and yeah. the like, though, Sorry, not really to get sort of sidetracked that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting topic, though. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of byways you can head down. Um, the, probably the most controversial thing that Sam Harris said during the exchange was that Islam is the motherload of bad ideas. And that's an interesting point to discuss because the question is, is Islam as a thought system, as a religion, more inherently problematic than Christianity, Judaism, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism? It's, uh, it's an interesting thing to think about. And you start thinking about things like separation of church and state, mm. which uh, for a long time in, um, in Western culture, there wasn't. Uh, enlightenment came around and suddenly there was um, and uh, and there was nothing uh, well clearly nothing strong enough in uh, in the Bible for them to uh, for them to stop it for, for them to stop it happening um, and yeah. my, whereas my understanding of the Quran and again you have a better understanding of it than I do um, is that it is very very explicit that there is no such thing as separation of church and state in a, in a Muslim country. Yes. Um, Which makes me wonder how a similar sort of enlightenment would be possible. Well, okay, so I actually think that Judaism is a constructive case. Yeah. So you got all sorts of heinous shit in the Old Testament. Yeah. Ethnic true. cleansing, slavery, yeah. all sorts of really, really unpleasant things. Foreskins being cut off and collected. Yeah, let's be absolutely frank. Is, I mean, circumcision really? Oh, I don't get it. Um, Anyway, not to get sidetracked on that. Judaism went through this interesting process after sort of the diaspora, all the Jews were kicked out of the Middle East. Um, Many remained, of course, as a historical side note, but there are also a lot of them in Europe. And through the sort of the 14th, 15th, 16th century, you had these really important developments in Judaism where you had rabbis creating commentary on the Bible or the Old Testament, as we would call it, the Torah. And then commentaries on commentaries and commentaries on commentaries and commentaries. And through this incredibly rigorous intellectual debate, basically they neutered the religion. They took the sharp edges off it. They explained why it wasn't necessarily appropriate to stone a woman if she's not a virgin on her wedding night. They, they kind of found intellectual and abstract pathways around some of the more extreme stuff from the Old Testament. And Christianity has done the same thing, particularly with the Enlightenment. And so you could actually, at least as far as Christianity and Judaism is concerned, see the history of Western and Jewish civilization as a journey towards basically neutering and making religion increasingly irrelevant, at least in its literal interpretative mm. form. Yeah. And what I find interesting about, uh, about Islam as, as a comparison is it in a way, it almost seems like the opposite is happening. Uh, when, you, when you think about Islam in the Middle Ages, 
and uh, and how Iraq and Baghdad was, you know, a, a uh, I was going to say Mecca, but it's a bit redundant of um, <laughs> of learning and tolerance. Um, I wouldn't say tolerance necessarily. Um, the Muslims for their time were incredibly advanced. There's no question yeah. about that. And the idea that you would not slaughter people of a different religion, frankly, the Muslims put that into practice much better than the Christians yeah. ever did. And tolerance of ideas as well. Like they, yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah, that's more what I was going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, in terms of the, you know, the uh, the things that they they kept alive, um, and uh, and really since the um, since the Wahhabis took over. Um, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia <laughs> yeah. and uh, and you know control over over Mecca basically, yeah. and you know de facto control over the the religion of Islam. They seem to have been moving ever further away, yeah, from that sort of. Uh, I want to use a better word than enlightenment. <laughs> anyway, you know what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean the Wahhabis, just for a bit of context, are fairly or were at least a relatively marginal sect of Islam that was very literal in its interpretation of the Quran. Um, and it was once analogized that uh, it's like the Jehovah's Witnesses um, taking over Saudi Arabia and getting a ton of oil wealth and then kind of just exporting that particular strain of Christianity. Um, and Not I, quite as benign as the Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, at least in their current incarnation. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that the, the interesting thing is that, is that the Muslim world, and yes, I know that's a very general term, there are many exceptions, has not really had an opportunity to neuter Islam. Um, they've not had their enlightenment. They've not had their commentaries on commentaries on commentaries by Maomides, I think, is the name of the, one of the more famous rabbis. And as a result, they're still stuck in this morass of literalism. And the other unfortunate thing about the Quran is it is very much pitched at the society level. It's quite specific uh, about how you're supposed to run society. For instance, it goes into detail about the fact that a non-Muslim can never testify in a Sharia court of law against a Muslim. Um, a woman is supposed to inherit half of what a man does. There, there are some real specifics in there about how to run shit. Of course, Leviticus in the Torah is analogous in terms of specifics, but they had their enlightenment. The uh, Arabs really have not. And I think one of the more interesting things about the Arab world is if, that if you walk down the street of Nablus, where I lived 40 years ago, 90% of women would not have been wearing hijab because there was this nationalist sweep of the Middle East, um, the Ba'athist party in Iraq run by Saddam at a certain point was, is a good example of that. And they were anti-religious, but it was a top-down phenomenon. The secularized Arab countries were a top-down phenomenon and that's really, like Islam has reasserted itself and a lot of those um, regimes like the Syrian and the Iraqi Ba'ath Party are either null and void or in danger of being so. Um, so they've not really done their, what's the word? They haven't had their cultural um, maturing. Oh, I'm going to come out and say it. Like they just have not culturally matured. And when you go through a bookstore in the Arab world, as I did on a number of occasions, 
It's not like the West where you have religious bookstores and then bookstores that are mostly non-religious texts. In any bookstore, at least in the places where I was, um, you have, for the most part, religious texts. And it's just indicative of the fact that intellectual, um, intellectual life in many of the Muslim countries that I was in, um, Egypt, um, Palestine, for want of a better way to put it, Jordan, uh, were dominated by religious rhetoric and discussion. Um, so, the, I mean, I think that Islam has a bunch of bad ideas in it, like any thought system does, but I'm less and less convinced that it's the thought system itself that's problematic, so much as it is the cultural problem with not having gone through this process of basically making religion less relevant. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I mean, you can see that it is, uh, even with uh, the state of the religion today, and again, just drawing the, the distinction uh, or just pointing out the differences between, say, Middle Eastern Islam and Asian Islam. Mm. Um, and uh, one certainly seems substantially more benign than the other. Yeah, it absolutely does. And but there are certain you know poles. with with you know uh, examples of separation of church and state, uh, women being elected as leaders of countries, things like that. Yeah, uh, that, and that's all. Those are all good points. It's often something that the left talk about when people criticise Islam specifically. They say, well, you know, uh, there have been many more um, female heads of state in the Muslim world than there have been in the so-called Western world. Yeah. And that's a fair point. I mean, they're absolutely right about that. And so. I'm kind of heading, I suppose, I still haven't made up my mind about this despite my exposure to this kind of stuff, but I think it's more of a cultural problem than it is a problem with the religion, but I think also that religion is just an inherently problematic thing to begin with anyway. Uh, so it's, it's a tough one to sort of get your arms around, and it's, it's a slippery concept, but when you read some of the poll results, for instance, that 70% of Egyptian Muslims believe that the correct um, punishment for apostasy or leaving Islam should be death, that 76% of British Muslims think that the cartoonist who drew pictures of Muhammad that were deemed insulting by the Muslim world should have been imprisoned. You've got a problem. Whether it be cultural, whether it be religious, frankly, those two things are hard to distinguish a lot of the time. You've got a problem that's yeah. particular to that cultural religious context. In my opinion, at least, I don't think we're in disagreement about that. No, I have my own uh, my own thoughts on whether not just Islam but religion is uh, something that causes problems, or if it is just basic human nature. Um, Go ahead. That's, oh, it's something we. Could, it's something I think you just keep talking about for hours. Yeah, and I, uh, I'm aware of the fact that we're getting on an hour already. Yeah, we are. We should probably call it a day. Um, but certainly that's something for a future discussion. So let's call it uh, at that point. And it's probably worth saying everyone who wants to email us or abuse us or compliment us, our email address is mail at patternrodsavetheworld.com. Feel free to write in with whatever you like. Suggest topics. Tell us we're wrong. Tell us why we're right. And if you're going to do either, um, you know, give us reasons. Yep. All right. You might get a shout out like Stormwise. Yeah. I mean, and who could uh, ask for anything better than that? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Till next week.